In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Scottish Blethers with me, Helen Houston. And I'm Liz Lister. And today we've decided to talk about the life and times of Mary Queen of Scots. So why did we decide to talk on this subject in particular? Well, I found a kind of a tenuous link. October marks the anniversary of the birth of Henry Lord Darnley. That was Mary, Queen of Scots' husband. His grandmother, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, she was born in 1515 in October. And the death of Margaret Tudor, who was the grandmother of Mary, Queen of Scots, who died in 1541. But both of these women gave the claim that James, Mary's son, had to the throne of England much stronger because they were both related, very closely related, to Henry VII of England and Henry VIII of England. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that, you know, the reason I think that, that Mary, Queen of Scots, is of interest is that if anybody is coming to Scotland and knows anything at all about Scottish history, there are two characters that spring to mind, Bonnie Prince Charlie and Mary, Queen of Scots. And both of them are love them or hate them. They're Bovril characters. You know, some people think that they were just poor, maligned individuals, you know, tragedies of Scottish histories, whereas other thinks they're... Well, some some people think they're the bee's knees, others think they're the devil's spawn. But let's go through it and see what we think. See what we think at the end of it. And I agree with you. And I think, as we said earlier, Liz, that if, if they slept in every bed that they say they've slept in, they were never out of bed. <laughs> we'll maybe come to follow that up a bit more. <laughs> with a wee story somewhere. So when Mary, Queen of Scots, was born in sort of the 8th of December, 1542. What was Scotland like? Well, it was a bit of a mess, actually, because once again, the King of Scotland, James V, had taken Scotland into a, a battle with England and they had been defeated, as were most of the, if you like, the movers and shakers in Scotland at that time had been either killed or taken prisoner. So here we are just a generation after the Battle of Flodden, where the same had happened, in the same situation. But also in Scotland at this time, the church was in a bit of a muddle too. It was not at its religious reformation, but there were bubbling away underneath the surface. And Mary was born at Linlithgow Palace, while her father was in Falkland Palace, very ill, really suffering from 
I don't know, depression or something, that when he heard the news that she had been born, the story goes, apparently first recorded by John Knox in his, some of his journals, that James V said it can we alas, a little gang we alas. And basically he wasn't saying, yippee dippy doo, I've got a baby, a baby girl. He was saying that she'll not survive. So there was a regency required because he died within six days and she became queen at six days old. Yeah, I mean, what he was talking about coming to an end with Alas was the Stuart dynasty because, of course, her father was James V. And if anybody's ever visited Stirling Castle, we'll have seen the royal apartments there, which he built for his second wife, Marie de Guise. And Marie de Guise was a very strong woman. Um, she had been married before, but she married James V and he built these beautiful royal apartments for her. And they had one legitimate child, which was Mary. But Mary was the granddaughter of Margaret Tudor, who was the wife of James IV, and she was the sister of Henry VIII. So she was the line of the English throne. So here you have this young baby being born into this world of chaos. You've got the, the French and the English fighting, both of them trying to, to get the Scots onto their side so that they were more powerful in Europe against the Spanish. So it's this hotbed of political intrigue. And as you said there, Helen, also religious intrigue with the Reformation bubbling underneath. So what a time to be born into. And at the time, as James V was fighting against the English, he turned his head into the wall and he died. And when Henry VIII heard that he had died, he said he was not going to wage war against the kingdom of a dead man. So where he had been fighting in the past, he thought, slowly, slowly, catchy monkey, I'll go for the marriage route. I've got a son, Edward, he's just five years old, but we'll get him married off in a treaty with Mary and that'll bring the two countries nicely together. Power over Scotland to convince them to become Protestant. So that was his plan. And the Protestants in Scotland, of course, were quite happy with that plan. So they signed a treaty agreeing that Mary would marry his son. But Mary de Guise, Catholic herself, she did not want her daughter married off to a Protestant. And with the help of Cardinal Beaton, who was the, the highest Catholic in the land at that point, they opposed the marriage and they convinced the people of Scotland that it would be a threat not just to the Catholic religion, but to Scottish identity. And so the treaty that had been negotiated for the marriage was abrogated. It was abandoned and Henry wasn't a happy bunny. This was his plans down the spout. So what he did was to initiate a series of raids against Scotland, which were called the Rough Wooing. He was trying to woo the Scots into allowing Mary to marry his son. But if there's one thing you, you don't do with Scots is try to force them to do anything. And so they had to hatch a plan to try and get out of this marriage with England. And what Mary de Guise did was to send her daughter across to France, to her homeland. So after having spent time being moved all around Scotland during this rough wooing, she was eventually packed off to France. So what places do you think of Helen when you think of, of Mary moving around Scotland during her childhood? Well, one of the first ones I do now is you've got to, you've got to bear with me. It is to Stirling because apparently she was born in Linlithgow Palace, which was a pleasure palace, whereas the palace at Stirling was a much more defended. It was much more of a fortification. But to move her, now what is that, about 20 miles, I think, Linlithgow to Stirling? Uh-huh, as the crow flies. Yeah, as the crow flies. 3,500 armed men escorted her, this tiny baby. 
This was, she was six months old at this time. And I can just see them walking along the, the track to Stirling with this tiny little baby pram being in the middle of the, of the army marching along there. I hope they didn't wake her up. <laughs> I have the, the, this a similar sort of image. I mean, when the, she was crowned, when the coronation took place, when she was just a few days old, the crown was so large that her head went right through it. <laughs> just imagine crowning this tiny little baby. Yeah, well, as, and one of the lovely quotes I had had for that was that when she was crowned, somebody said, yes, it was done with such solemn, solemnity as they do use in this country, which is not very costly. <laughs> I love that. And the other one, Inchmahome. Have you visited Inchmahome Priory? You know, I haven't. I've been to the Lake of Monteith many times, but I've not actually taken the boat ride over. Have you been there, Liz? Yeah, I have. It's lovely. There's um, trees that everywhere you go, just like the beds that she's supposed to have slept on, there's trees that she's supposed to have planted. So it's, it's well worth taking the little ferry across. So yes, and then Dumbarton Castle. Yes, yes, that's that's such a imposing looking place isn't it on the rock there yeah it is so that's where she set off from when she went and left to go across to France and Henry II of France had promised Mary safety in return for the agreement to marry his son Francois the Dauphin of France so off she went to a life in France and Henry absolutely doted on her he thought she was the most beautiful child he'd ever seen so he was besotted and Francis became her great playmate they were sweetheart he absolutely adored her Yes, and as I said, as I said there, that from the very first day they met, Henry II said that my son and Mary got on so well together, it's as if they'd known each other forever. Yeah, and I mean, just think of it, she was a child of five, but there was one fly in the ointment, and that was Catherine de' Medici, Francoise's mother. Now, if you've read any of the articles that Fran has written in Guide Collective, because we also write, Helen and I are both involved in Guide Collective, Catherine Medici had a perfumiere, and that perfumiere was basically her poisoner. She was, <laughs> she wasn't too reluctant to drip poison in anybody that came in her way. And of course, when Mary came, she was a queen. And in the nursery, she had precedence over Catherine's daughters. So Catherine Medici was waiting in the shadows. Yes, and, and I think that, again, when Mary was in France, I mean, I think she, she was, a, as you said, a beautiful child. But even as she grew, she didn't lose the, the sweetness. She, she grew in beauty and she grew to be extremely tall by those standards. Five foot eleven, they reckon she was. Whereas poor little Francois, he was unusually short, it is recorded. Yeah, and he was a sickly child. And he had a stutter. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't the bonniest of chookies. And so at the age of 15, here you have this beautiful woman, not just tall, almost six feet, but this stunning red hair. And so when she married Francois at the age of 15, she wore white. She, she was lavishly decorated in this white gown with her auburn hair and her pink complexion. The effect was absolutely dazzling, but even more so because in France, white is the colour of mourning. Yes, and it's interesting because I've been at the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh today and I was just looking at her, the portrait of her dressed in white when she was mourning for the death of Francois. But but apparently she signed a secret agreement just before she married the, the Dauphin, a secret agreement bequeathing Scotland and her claim to England to the French crown if she died without issue. 
You can just imagine all this plotting because, of course, at the court in France were her family, the, the Guises, and they were in a position of huge power and influence. And so what they wanted was not only Mary to be Queen of Scotland, Queen of France, but also Queen of England. And so they wanted power over the English, and that was one way of achieving it. And all just almost immediately, a few months after the marriage, Henry VIII's daughter, Bloody Mary, who had become Queen of England after his death, she died childless. And onto the throne of England came Mary's cousin, Elizabeth I. Yes, and, and um, you know, and, but also, you know, this great sort of striving to have the crowns of all the these countries came to an abrupt end when poor Francois died. Even before Francois died, you've got Henry dying. Now, Henry was a bit like our James IV. He was a great chivalrous knight, and he died in a jousting competition where he got an arrow through the eye, and Francis ascends to the throne, so Mary becomes Queen of France as well as Queen of Scotland. Yes, very powerful. Probably the most powerful woman in Europe at that time, as what what is she fifteen years old? Yeah, fifteen years old. Yep. So poor old wee sickly Francois with his stammer. He he dies of a ear infection after he's been out on a day's hunting. Previously, obviously, didn't wear his hat. But again, the intrigue: did he die or was he poisoned? Because certainly Catherine Medici saw that her best option lay not with Francois but with his brother, and so she wanted Charles to come on to the throne. And of course, she wasn't having any of any of Mary hanging about. Mary did have a you know a wee bit of a dilemma: would she stay in France and be the dowager, or would she would she you know come back to Scotland? But I think she decided that Catherine de Medici was probably the the thing that kind of swung the balance. Go back to Scotland. Yes, she was persuaded that even although by this stage Scotland had turned to a Protestant nation, that her best option lay in coming back and trying to persuade her people to rally behind her and accept her as their queen. And so she did, and she arrived in Leith, and uh, almost immediately John Knox was battering away to her door. And apparently there was, a, as there was today, a har over the, over the water. A har is like a, a fog over the water and um, so this har was over there and John Knox didn't miss he just sort of said oh yes he said you know that just shows us we're bringing the queen bringing her to Scotland sorrow dollar darkness impiety that's what the har means <laughs> yeah so it was a great welcome for her but she she you know she was charming she was highly educated i mean at the court in france she spoke several languages she loved poetry she loved writing letters so this highly educated charming beautiful woman arrived problem was that the catholics were who were against the reformation were rallying behind her this was Catholic Queen of Scotland, but also with a great claim to the throne of England. And so Elizabeth I on the throne in England, she was a real threat. Would this be someone that the Catholics in England would rally behind? Yes, and, and you know, but, but you're right. Mary really, she came into her own. She, she, she sort of saw all this going on. And one of the things that I'm really very interested in, that she left Scotland, what, aged five, six, seven? But she never lost her Scots, the Scots language. Now, Scots language is is English, but not English. 
but she would have been speaking French in the French court, but she kept up, whether it was herself or her advisors told her, you have to keep up your your native language. So she came back and was able to speak with John Knox in Scots. She was able to speak with her people in Scotland in their language. So that endeared her to them. And the other thing, of course, she did for the first four years, she was over here, she wandered around the country. She got to know the people because she had no relatives here or any, no legitimate relatives here. So she wandered around the country and got to know the people, got to know what Scotland was and also your holding court as she went. So she was doing fairly well at this stage. She was winning people around. They, you know, they, they thought there were worse things than having a, a beautiful, intelligent woman on the throne. But of course, a woman couldn't rule on her own in these days. There was the matter of dynastic succession to be settled. The husband hunt, <laughs> or is it the fella? The, the felly hunt. <laughs> We've all been there, girls. <laughs> now, of course, Elizabeth is down on the throne in England. And Mary sees that her chances of success in getting the Stuart line returned to the throne of England is by getting Elizabeth to accept her as her heir. Because by this stage, Elizabeth's getting on and she hasn't married and she hasn't produced any heirs to the throne. So so Mary is trying to get Elizabeth to approve any marriage. But of course, Elizabeth doesn't want to do that. And so anybody that Mary comes up with is rejected. And even Don Carlos, who was the heir to the Spanish throne, who was looking quite good that there was going to be a marriage lined up there, he fell down the stairs and suffered brain damage. So Mary was just cursed. She was just not lucky with men. And I think it was even his father who said to me, no, this is not a good match. (laughs) Don't go for it. So Elizabeth put up the Earl of Dudley. Um, who was one of her favourites, and uh, Mary contemptuously dismissed him. She said he was a stable boy. So eventually, Mary quite rightly got fed up. And so she decided that she would make her own choice and she would marry for love. And this is where it really begins to go drastically wrong. So just imagine the scene. Here you've got Mary, who's been brought up. She's a beautiful woman. She's into sports. She's very active. And she was married to a sickly child. It's even in doubt whether that marriage was ever consummated. So Mary is now in the prime of life and she comes across her cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Now, he was the son of the fourth Earl of Lennox and the Earl of Lennox was a very ambitious man because he saw his son's right to the throne of England and he wanted to marry. And so whether it was by chance or whether it was at the at the conniving of the Earl of Lennox, they came together and when Mary saw him, she thought, wow. I think as Queen Elizabeth of, of England said, that Mary fell in love with the long lad because he was over six foot tall, the long lad. Yeah, Mary himself referred to him as the lustiest and best proportion <laughs> lang man I have ever seen. So she was smitten. Yeah, and I think I think this is where you know everything crumbles, as far as I'm concerned, around Mary. She has been very good up to this point. She's she's done everything well and as she should. And then suddenly, it's she just cannot choose the right men, and so we've got Darnley, and she's cho- choosing it with choosing him with her eyes rather than even her heart. So she's got the long lad. There's one wee story that before she even 
decides on Darnley, Liz, I'd love the story about the French poet who was absolutely obsessed <laughs> with her. And, and then he he hid underneath her bed, you know, while she was getting undressed. And when she found him, she, she was horrified and she banished him. But then she cried out and Murray, her half-brother, who was you know, kind of looking after her, came rushing in and she, you know, he, she said to thrust your dagger into him, you know, kill him. And he said, no, because he's being held, that would be unfair. But he was eventually beheaded, but he was besotted by Mary. Yeah, some people say that it was a plot by the Protestants to um, to bring her name into disrepute. But what's the story? I mean, this is the life that she was living, you know, with all this plotting going on around him. But anyway, when she got Henry Ron Darnley, she was nursing him through a bout of measles. Now, we'll come back to whether or not it was measles in a minute. But while she nursed him back to health again, she fell in love with him and she was off. They didn't even wait for Elizabeth's permission or even dispensation from Rome because they were cousins. They were close blood relatives. They were off down to Seton Palace. Two nights they stayed there together and then their bands were announced in church on this Sunday. So the cart before the horse there a bit, Helen. <laughs> yes, that'll come to my word of the day later <laughs> on. <laughs> but, but um, you know, as you say, Elizabeth was, was threatened by this marriage. But also the Catholics and you know, the Protestants, both of them were, were kind of concerned because, you know, Darnley, they were Catholics, but they were trying to get Scotland to become Protestant. So, but here we have the union of two Catholics. So um, religion is still here and John Knox is still thumping the table and talking about the monstrous regiment of women and you know everything is wrong. But I like the bit where they then go, during the course of all this, they, they have what is then called the chase about raids. Yeah. Which, <laughs> you know, which I think is just a lovely name for it where, where you know, Murray goes out to sort of you know, chase about the countryside saying, you know, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to let this happen. Mary gets some people behind her and she goes out chasing around the country. They never actually confront each other. They never actually do battle. They just chase about and then say, oh, well, that's enough. We'll, we'll give it up now. Yeah. It, it was but you know the saying as well, marry in haste, repent at leisure. And I think that was very much the case with Mary because within a few weeks, months of marrying him, she saw him for his true colours. I mean, Henry Lord Darnley was not a nice man. He was very ambitious. He wasn't particularly bright or intelligent like she was. He was arrogant and he was faithless and untrustworthy. He was he, he was not to be trusted at all. And so the, these illnesses, the, the measles and the smallpox and whatever, we now know that he was absolutely riddled with syphilis. Yes, but in amongst all of this, they did manage, he did manage to father a child and Mary did become pregnant. So even as we have in this present day and age, the heir was the key thing in a marriage, produce an heir. That's right. But almost within months, the marriage was beginning to break down. And one of the main reasons for that was what was called the crown matrimonial. Being as ambitious as he was, Danley wasn't happy with just being her consort, you know, like Prince Philip following in the shadow of the Queen. That was not for Danley. He wanted to be king in his own right. And Mary saw the writing on the wall and quite rightly, she did not give him that. She held that, that away from him. But after their, after their son was born, 
just in, in context of the crown matrimonial, she had made for him a very, sounds like a gold lamy suit, you know, some very ostentatious because he wasn't getting the crown matrimonial, but she felt, well, he can wear a gold suit for the for the <laughs> baptism of his son. And bling. That, 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 that might help, you know. He's not, he's not getting the bling on his head, but he can have it on his back. <laughs> well, he was, he was not satisfied and into this strayed a poor, innocent character. I mean, some people thought he was an agent of the Pope and because he was Italian. We don't know very much about him, except that he was Italian and he was a musician. But his name was David Rizzio, and he was Mary's bosom buddy. It's questionable as to whether they ever had an intimate relationship, but she certainly confided in him. He was her companion, her counsel, and Darnley was beside himself with jealousy. I don't think, I I just, my, my image of Rizzio and Mary is that he was Italian, so he'd grown up in the similar kind of um, sophisticated musical surrounding that Mary had done in France. So coming back to Scotland, which by this time was, after the religious reformation, was dull. Anything that was joyful and, you know, fun-loving had been banned. So I think Mary and Rizzio, in my mind, are just enjoying reminiscing about the past and what life had been like on the in Europe. Well, it wasn't difficult for the Protestant lords to play on Darnsley's jealousy and they hatched a pot and in Holyrood Palace, while um, Mary was having supper with her, her, mate, her um, maids and David Rizzio, up the stairs they came, the lords of the convention, the Protestant lords with Darnley, and they stabbed and killed Rizzio in front of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was six months pregnant at the time. Yes, and he and she was being held by Darnley while you know, one of the conspirators, Ruthven, was pointing a pistol at her you know, pregnant stomach. Yeah. I mean, I think it shows exactly who Darnley was, this particular thing. And almost immediately he was contrite and the two of them, Mary and Darnley, escaped from Holyrood Palace, went round about again and then ended up at Edinburgh Castle where eventually Mary gave birth in a tiny little room, if you've ever seen it, to James, who would become James VI of Scotland and James I of England through time. Yeah, but and of course, you know, Darnley's now, the writing was on the wall for him because not only had he deeply offended Mary by even being part of this conspiracy to murder her, her friend. But he be, now was betraying his allies by sort of saying, it wasn't me, it was the big boys, and they all ran away. And so you know, he was landing them in it, and he was getting right. So the writing was on the wall for him from all sides. Mary knew that if she was going to be queen, she had to put up a, a strong front. And so for that, she appeared to reconcile with Darnley and things were looking good by the autumn of 1566. She was doing well. She was astute and um, she was handling things with diplomacy. And she was out on a progress, one of these civic courts where they went round and meted out justice. And she was down in Jedburgh at a circuit court there where she heard that one of her lieutenants, a man called James Hepburn, the fourth Earl of Bothwell, had been seriously wounded while he was bringing in some of the local reavers, a man called Weejock Elliot, and he was lying dangerously ill at Hermitage Castle, just 25 miles from Jedburgh. So she hot-footed it down there, and on the way back, it was a terrible night, it was frosty, 
and she caught a severe chill which turned to fever and she just about died at Jedburgh. But what I like is the story that it was her French physician, he saved her life, he bound her tightly and he administered an enema. The answer to everything, administer an enema. <laughs> That's right. And of course, that ride to the Hermitage Castle and back was another kind of nail in her coffin because that was brought up time and time again, that you know, what had she done by doing that? And I understand, Liz, remind me, I think they found quite recently in the, the mud or the marshes a watch or something that they believe could have been dropped by Mary during that you know, ride out to Bothwell and back. Yeah, it's a good story, but does it have providence? That's what the last gone Antiques Roadshow, Helen. <laughs> Where's the providence? That's exactly what the last guess, yes. I can't even remember what it was and where it was and who's now yeah. got it. So the, the baptism of James VI takes place at Stirling Castle. Elizabeth I doesn't attend, even though she's a godparent, but she sends a representative in her place. But she does give a golden baptismal font as a... So there's this surface, this, this um, surface good relationship between the two cousins Elizabeth and Mary but they never actually met they were going to meet weren't they there was a meeting arranged down in York and for one reason or another that I think it was cancelled or one of them couldn't make it but there was a meeting arranged they had hoped to meet but it didn't work out but I don't think Elizabeth was much up for it well, we're, we're, we're now looking at the conspiracy at Craig Miller Castle. There was a meeting at Craig Miller Castle because Mary was getting really fed up with Darnley. And I think coming to that near-death experience made her think, really, is this what I want? So she met with some of the leading nobles to discuss, as they put it, the problem of Darnley. And not quite sure what the overall discussion was, but Darnley was ill. He was recovering in... Kirkofield's cottage just outside Edinburgh when Mary was visiting him just going as you said Liz this you know, reconciliation we're, we're we're managing it we're keeping a, a good face on it but one day in February or one evening the early hours of the morning there was a great big bang and the cottage blew up but interestingly enough Darnley's body was found unmarked in the garden but he'd been smothered. So the suggestion is this was another conspiracy. Yeah, Kirka Fields stands on where the quad of the University of Edinburgh's old college stands now. And there's a picture which shows Darnley and his page lying dead in the orchard of Kirko Fields. And there's a and rope and there's a dagger. It's like a scene out of Who Done It. Um, and it's one of the great mysteries of all time. But he was certainly dead, and it's probably it was a conspiracy of of um, of individuals that got together that night. But undoubtedly, the suspicion was falling on Bothwell, and so by implication, Mary was getting involved in it as as well. And so there was a lot of suspicion, and she didn't help herself when she was out playing golf a couple of days later down at Seaton. So she loved her golf. Loved, yes, because you mentioned that the other week. Didn't yeah, you? yes, yeah. But I'm going to say, but there was a there was a trial. Lennox, Darnley's father, insisted that it was Bothwell and that Bothwell should be put on trial. And um but Lennox, Darnley's father, wasn't allowed any time to prepare for this. So the trial went ahead and within, you know, just hours, seven hours, Bothwell was acquitted, not guilty. So that was it. 
So then it all becomes very murky as to what happened. But certainly suspicion turned to scandal. Was their queen implicated in this murder? And it didn't help things when Mary then married Boswell. Now, whether she went voluntary or whether she was forced, we don't know. But one thing or another, and Boswell divorces his wife. And within a few days, he has married Mary under Protestant service. But that all of that was done so quickly. My my feeling is that, that she was either under some sort of spell or that she was really being forced because the suggestion is that you know she he might have Boswell might have raped her because he seemed to be abducting her by force. She didn't seem to know what was going on. And certainly to have her marriage conducted under the Protestant religion rather than her own Catholic religion seems very suspicious. But one way or another, Scotland was shocked as much by the marriage as about the murder of Darnley. And so Mary was beginning to fall into the bad books and a lot of people began to plot against her. Yes, and she and Bothwell, you know, they, they, they confronted their opponents at, at Carberry Hill. No battle there, but they just kind of confronted them there. Mary's forces just dwindled away, you know, She'd lost her popularity, so her forces just melted away, so there was no battle. Bothell was given safe passage from the field, and Mary was taken prisoner. She was taken to Loch Leven Castle. Well, first of all, to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before she went to Loch Leven Castle, um, she surrendered to the lords. She was forced to ride along with the, the rebels without food or rest, no attendance with her, no maid servants. And she thought, well, what's going on here? And then when she got to Edinburgh, the jeers of the crowd shouting, burn the witch, burn the witch. Because in those days, the fate of a woman who murdered her husband was that she was burned like a witch. So she was considered a whore and they were for burning her. So the mob took her from Edinburgh um, from the Lord Prophet's house down to Holyrood Palace and that wasn't even considered safe enough so they got her out of town and as you say Helen across to Loch Leven Castle. Yes and and you know, again an island fortress if you like a bit like we've talked about Mary Queen of Scots going to Inchmahome on Loch, Loch um, the Lake of Monteith an island fortress which was thought to be not capable of being you know, escaped from but Mary did a year after her imprisonment there, she managed to get out of Loch Leven with the help of, as you say, drugging almost the whole of the island. They put on a party or one of the one of the young lads, the young boatmen, put on a party and managed to drug everybody till they were all drunk very quickly, sound asleep. And he just pegged all the boats down on the shore that were there so that they couldn't just jump into boats and go away. Only one was available. That was the one that the Queen and the young Douglases were going to row her over to the shore and to freedom. Yeah, it was her charm as always. She absolutely charmed this young page boy. So they fell in love with her, stole the keys and rowed her across to shore. And of course, there were sympathetic nobles waiting for her and they took off through the night. And she still had a lot of support because she was able to raise 6,000 supporters to help her try to regain the throne because she'd been forced to abdicate while she was on Loch Leven. And now her son, James, had become James VI of Scotland, a Protestant king. So you had the Queen's men and the King's men gathering one against the other. And they, they sort of, you went face to face just outside Glasgow at a battle of Langside. And again, you know, it was just an ambush. It was a bit of a rout. And, you know, that really Mary lost all her, as you say, 
she she was a strong woman. She had courage. She had grit. She had bottle, but she appeared to just lose it, and she just ran away. She ran away with some of her followers just running from the field. I don't think she had much choice after she'd seen what had been going on in Edinburgh. She thought, my best chance stands with my cousin, you know, sisterhood. Let's go down. Let's charm Elizabeth. Let's get her to protect me. And so against the advice of her nobles, that's what she decided to do. And she went down to England and she tried to persuade Elizabeth to give her support to to get back the throne of Scotland. Well, again, Elizabeth had her own problems. She had the Catholics plotting to to take the throne from her. She had this beautiful cousin and she wasn't going to have anybody as a figurehead in England. But what could she do? Because at this time, remember that not only did she have to act politically, but she also had the church. You know, if she was seen in any way to be harming her own cousin, then she would, her her mortal soul would be in great danger. So she had to plough a very careful furrow. Yes, and and not only the church, you could she take the head of another queen? You know, what what, what were the, going to be the consequences of that? But we talk about Mary, Queen of Scots, being in prison. And so we mustn't think of just a small cell and a bucket in the corner. She actually, her chambers were decorated with fine tapestries and carpets. And her bed linen was changed daily. And her own chefs prepared meals with a choice of 32 dishes on silver plates. She was allowed outside on on the occasions, and she sometimes even spent summers in the in the spa town of Buxton. But her health declined. This this wasn't what she wanted. She was a sportswoman, as you've mentioned before, Liz. She wanted to be outside doing things, but she was doing a lot of embroidery and tapestries during her imprisonment. And eventually, you know, Murray, her confederate, and who was the regent in Scotland at the time, he was assassinated. Things were going wrong, and. It really all had to come to a close. Scotland was not doing well at this time, but Mary could do nothing about it. Neither could Elizabeth. And eventually it was decided to bring it to a head, wasn't it, Liz, with the Elizabeth eventually signing the papers. Okay, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Helen. She had a staff of 30 going round with her, but she was moved from pillar to post. And sometimes her accommodation was good and was sympathetic and she had company. But other times they hated her. And so, you know, to, to take away a young woman's freedom, and she was, she suffered all her life. They don't know whether it was ulcers or perhaps porphyra, but there was some sort of digestive problems. So it was really tortuous all this time. And she would write these letters to the Queen, to anybody who would listen to her to try and and get her freedom. But of course, all this time, there was various plots going on. She was plotting against Elizabeth and Elizabeth was plotting against her to try and get some reason to be able to put an end to it all. So we had the casket letters, which were supposed to be written at the time that um, she was in Glasgow and writing them to Boswell, which implicated in the murder of Darnley. Then we also have other plots that were said to be against Elizabeth. We had the Babington plot. We had the Babington plot there against Elizabeth. And and that was one. Again, it just seems to be letters that some say were written by her and some say were not written by her. Well, anyway, one way or the other, we better draw this to an end. So Elizabeth drew it to an end. With an execution. (laughs) Yeah, Elizabeth did. Finally, she got the evidence that she needed and it was enough to sign the death warrant for Mary's execution. Poor Mary heard about it at dinner, that the following day she was going to be put 
to the act. She was going to be executed at nine o'clock the following morning. She didn't have enough time to write proper letters. She was busy all that night writing any last letters that she could, but she wanted to make sure that her staff were looked after in her absence, that they were paid. And uh, so she spent her last night in prayer and writing letters. Yes, and they say they say there were a whole lot of mementos floating around or souvenirs of the great occasion of Mary's execution. But actually, I think that is wrong because apparently Elizabeth ordered that everything that had been touched by Mary's blood had to be burned immediately. Yeah, they didn't want anything hanging around as a relic that people could get behind. They wanted to put an enter once and for all. But there's a, a really a, a passage, Helen, that I'll read out because it really just describes it. It was a cold and bitter winter's day when Mary, with dignity intact as always, was led to the block. She wore a customary black cloak with a white veil over her head. When she reached the block, she dropped her cloak and revealed a crimson dress. Her last words were, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. It took three strokes of the axe to sever Mary's head. True or not, the story is that when her head toppled, her body began to move, frightening everyone present. It was found that her little terrier, Geddon, who was Mary's companion during her last years in prison, had hidden under her voluminous gown all through the exhibition. All that Mary with, took with her to her execution, crucifix, writing books, then her blood-stained clothes and even the block were burned. There were to be no relics. When the executioner held up Mary's severed head, the wig that she wore fell off and she was an old woman, white of hair and partially bald. I think that just gives a, a tragic summary of this terrible event. And also it just shows how stoic she must have been that nobody had any understanding of what was going on underneath the if you like underneath the makeup, away from the spotlight. That's right. And being an absolutely staunch Catholic, she had her faith, which was what held her in the end. But she also made it absolutely clear that she wanted to be buried in France, not in England. And she wanted to be buried in consecrated ground. And they completely ignored that. She was at first buried in an unmarked grave. At Peter, Peterborough. Body exhumed. And he had it then put in Westminster Abbey. And the irony is that today the two queens lie both in Westminster Abbey, but out of each other's sight, round the corner. They don't look at one another. Yes, they, that they, and I think that when you look at the, the effigy on Mary, Queen of Scots' tomb in Westminster Abbey that James had put, put down there, it's, it seems to be very much more regal than Queen Elizabeth's. So perhaps he was saying... Sorry, Mummy, I should have done more for you. A sad tale, a long tale. I'm sorry this is longer than normal, but um, it's just Mary Queen of Scots. It's such an interesting character. And if all you've seen is the film um, which came out with Saoirse Roman and Margot Robbie recently, well, a few years ago, it's not very accurate. It's like Braveheart. There's a lot of artistic license in it. So read the books, find out more about her. She certainly was some character. I think she definitely was. But Liz, what about words? Have you any words that fit in with what we've been talking about? Well, it's a wee bit ironic, Helen, but I thought for my words, it's actually a phrase, a phrase that you use a lot in Scotland, and that's, would you stop that? You're Dane Mahedon. <laughs> that's a good one, <laughs> yes. 
she's <laughs> <laughs> really annoying me. You're giving me a headache. You're doing my head in. <laughs> and, and my one is, I'm just, it's something we quite often say in Scotland, you know, when you're talking, nowadays everybody talks about their partner, you know, husband, wife, or a partner if you're not married. But in Scotland, we tend to say, is that your bidy in? That means, is that somebody who you're living with that you're not married to? A bidy in, biding with you, staying with you. And I think sometimes think that Bothwell might have been a bidy in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's another edition. I encourage people to go and have a, a look into Mary Queen of Scots in more depth. Yes, there's lots going on. There's there's talks by the British Library going on at the moment online that you can find online, so you could try that. But Liz, thank you very much. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, everyone. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.